So I didn't anticipate recording a podcast quite so quickly, so I'm going to save the Happy New Year's and stuff like that as I gave it previously. But I did get an email from Spencer, who's a listener to this podcast, wanting me to record a podcast about old school hip hop. And what I don't think Spencer realized in the request for doing that is this is actually two very distinct topics. So I'm going to talk about the harder one first, intentionally so. Now, Spencer obviously doesn't know this, but if you put my name into Apple Music or Spotify or a variety of different you know, music collation sites, you'll find music that I have either, well, always written and always produced, actually, but through different, very different circumstances. Now, what you need to assume is that, so let's talk about old school hip hop just as a phenomenon. I first found it in the very late 80s, and it was very difficult to get in Australia. You'd have to order it internationally. You'd have to pay for what was called export CDs or import CDs, I think, rather. Anyway. So I had to go through a lot of bells and whistles in order to actually get access to very basic hip-hop music. And when I was about 13, 14, I went to Los Angeles because my father, who was just divorced from my mother, moved to Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, there was a record store called Rhino Records that literally my father's stoop he walked out onto, uh, walked down to the street, there was an alleyway, and then Rhino Records was on the other side of the alleyway. So I bought a few records when i was in la as well and put them back to australia now these were very never heard of records and if you listen to attic aficionados you'll listen to some aspect of that but anyway so i got my hands onto records now creating hip-hop music is actually not that difficult it's a series of procedures which you need to work out you need to work out how to sample you need to work out how to scratch and then ideally you need to find musicians so when i got back to australia i decided that i was actually going to start writing and producing hip-hop music even though I was a white guy. Now, there's a, there's a, there are a couple of really strong narratives through this. The latter one is that I've stopped listening to almost all music because of what is called at work inclusion and diversity training, which just basically said that I had no right to be recording rap music at all. And also the whole fundamentals of rap music and a lot of the words that are used in rap music are all things that I shouldn't be listening to on a regular basis. So actually from that and also doing things like going to the Cota building in New York, a lot of my musical listening has just disappeared, but for my early childhood, I was very musically adept. I played the violin, the trombone, the piano, the piano for many years with a long-standing piano teacher who also taught me various musicianship, scholarship-related stuff. So playing music and playing music in groups kind of predates my puberty. I used to sing. I was a boy soprano for a short period of time, but I was an alto for more of that time and was able to sing with a number of interesting groups. I was at Mahler's Concert of a Thousand, obviously, you know, Handel's Messiah and these kind of things. I'd occasionally sing in front of paintings, and most of the time I'd sing at weddings. And that was really my childhood, playing musical instruments, singing at weddings. So when I came to record uh, hip-hop music, and some of this still exists, some of this is still available on Spotify and uh, iTunes and Apple Music, so you will be able to access certainly from 97 through to 2000. There's one track that came out in 2000 on the stuff. But if you say that part of my music that's available, that's the stuff I was recording. Considerably more experimental and considerably less mainstream than when I first started recording it. When I first started recording it, it was very much... Well, I used samples that I could never get clearance for this day. So that was basically the problem, that all the hip-hop that I recorded used samples that were blatantly obvious. Uh, what, the Sledgehammer by... What's the fellow's name? Anyway, 
you know, the Beatles frequently. I'd sample from the Beatles. I mean, I'd sample from whatever was accessible to me at the time and what was music that I thought, oh, Grand Funk Railroad, you know, some lesser samples through there, the Wombles. But basically, when I was creating hip-hop music before actually formally recording it digitally, I had a greater degree of freedom to sample from anywhere that I wanted, and I used that excessively. Now, the other part of this story, which actually goes back as much into my rules are better than it does in Long Funk, is one of the people who was very close to me through that period of time, I'm no longer communicative with, he's the fellow that broke the fence in San Jose, I might have mentioned it previously, but he was nominally supposed to be one of the rappers in the group that I was producing. However, he constantly and continued to frustratingly self-sabotage his own performance in regular, like he just never would turn up, basically. So my relationship with hip-hop music in that period of time, actually I expunged it. So if you look at the, I don't know what it's called now, the, the second set of remixes that I put out where I eliminate all his audio from the actual audio recording, that is the nature of the situation. So recording hip-hop required other people as well. I did do solo stuff, some of my solo stuff is there. But I always felt guilty about recording my own voice and music that I was producing and doing other things like that as well. Now, Tom the Musician still exists in some degree after that period of time. And certainly if you do the Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music search, you'll see music that I produced up to 2018, 2020, last periods of time of doing it. It's something I'd dearly love to return to, except the whole thing is covered with this funk associated, appropriate that it's a long funk recording associated with recording this music that I have no ethnic obligation to, no long-standing, you know, I've never been repressed. I've been a young person in Australia who's felt repressed, but I've never been explicitly under the, you know, the origins of this music. So it's a musical form, hip-hop specifically, that I feel very curious about. Now, when in probably, when I moved to the UK, I started listening to a radio show in McGill, uh, Canada, uh, in Mont- Montreal in Canada, called We Funk. And that reinvigorated a lot of my interest in hip-hop. And basically my interest in hip-hop is represented primarily by the West Coast, but also some East Coast hip-hop. And, you know, I have, I don't know, a relatively deep knowledge in some regard associated with this. I think Spencer gets this from uh, when the primary Humpty Hump from Digital Underground, Shock G, was killed, or killed himself, more importantly. Maybe mentioning that in a previous recording is how he knows that I have some connection with old school hip hop, but actually performing the music. And I was involved with a group called CIA, which was a Pentecostal group of all things doing religious rap music. I would literally DJ for Satan himself. The, the opportunity, <laughs> like the ability to DJ to a crowd. And when I toured with CIA, it was a really positive and kind of really curious experience because they were very heavily mobbed by teenage women when I was a teenager at the time too, so I was the right age demographic for teenage women. And the whole thing to me was like, this is what being a musician is. I've known through my life, people who have decided at apex points to become musicians rather than continue on their lives as physicists or mathematicians or these kind of things. And I've always felt that I had the same option because literally I got back to Australia after the Russian Combatical came out and I had the option of taking six months off and recording music and I didn't do that. So I speak very much not as a failed musician, but as a never-was musician with regards to this stuff. Now let's talk about hip-hop in a broader sense. As a musical form, re-listening or listening to Wee Funk made me realize that I had a huge breadth of knowledge associated with this thing, because obviously when you're a DJ, you have some aspect of knowing the music that you're DJing and also 
have an understanding of the various performers and this kind of stuff. So really, I've tried recently, I've tried listening to the Amigos and various other things. I've tried listening to modern hip-hop. It just doesn't have the same impact on me. I mean, really, you know, to see the impact that Public Enemies, Fear of a Black Planet, NWA's, uh, Straight Out Compton, I mean, these were albums that I listened to in real time as they were released. And the impact that these albums had on me was pretty astronomical. So the impact that hip-hop has had on me has been very real. But also, if you listen to any public enemy, any early public enemy at least, it's very confronting music. It's not confronting music because of the subject matter. It's confronting music because of the musical form. The way that they put the music together is intentionally confrontational. It's really very strange to listen to this as someone who's had primarily a classical music education and then dissected accordingly. Now, obviously, this absolutely 0% of my current life is impacted by this stuff, and I'm looking back... I mean, this probably is the origin of my rules of better too. Zero percent of my current life is impacted by this stuff, but of extreme importance to me. So thank you very much, Spencer, for throwing this out as a topic. So anyway, I own through digital music now a great degree of music associated with this time, but I rarely listen to it these days. It's interesting, actually, my records, which are greatly diminished through donations, but also giving a large number to my brother as well, have, uh, you know, they contain some of this element too. But again, I have a turntable literally with a, a scratch pad and turntable packed away in our bedroom that I haven't gotten out since we moved to this house and probably won't get out for a number of years. Maybe there will come a stage where my daughters are interested in music sufficiently for me to get out the old records. Daddy's old records. Should be grandpa's old records, but in fact, it's daddy's old records get out at some stage to listen to. Of that... And I have actually a record within that that I produced and put out too. So, you know, I have some connection to the music in a very strange way as both a listener and also periodically a producer. And it very rarefied, rarefied is the word I meant for the last recording, not gentrified, rarefied times in my life, I have been able to be both a listener and a producer of this style of music. And it makes you very... Not necessarily critical, but it's just really interesting to hear how the recording techniques, particularly associated with sampling, have changed so dramatically over the past three decades. I mean, the nature of sampling from a record and sampling from a record in an 8-bit, 10-bit, 12-bit digital recorder that then goes onto a CD is actually noticeable if you understand the nuances of this music. And the movement to digital music has been absolutely fascinating because obviously... I was really doing digital music early on. When I switched to digital music, I got a grant from the Australian Film Commission probably in 1997. And I started doing digital production from then on. And even then, there were analog-esque digital packages that tried to represent what analog recording was like through the period of time. So I've seen on kind of backlog way the changes and, you know, quite interestingly in terms of like listening to the music and understanding what's going into producing the music behind it. And although uh, I don't have a professional recording studio, you don't need a professional recording studio in order to get these nuances down in recording. So it's actually a very complex thing that as both a listener and producer of this stuff, as a producer, you start listening to this stuff very, very differently. So Spencer, I think that's been, that's basically old school hip hop in a nutshell. I don't think I've abbreviated too much. I don't want to delve too deeply into the nuances of just stop recording music, stop making music, or even really the fact that my musical ability has never impacted any aspect of my life. And I mean, it's been an aside. It's been something I've been able to throw out there occasionally when people (laughs) are suspecting it to come out. But it's something that I don't do in the majority of my life. And very similar, actually, to role playing. 
I mean, the the similarities between old school hip hop production and role playing are great and somewhat probably too numerous to actually discuss in a greater degree in a podcast recording in a positive light. So thank you, Spencer, for at least expanding this knowledge. And I think I've fitted in a long funk format as best I can. So um, please, folks who are listening in, Spencer did what I've asked many of you to do and email me. Actually, I emailed him first to be truthful, but uh, he emailed me a topic which was old school hip hop and that created this podcast recording. So as you listen to this podcast recording, barbele at gmail.com, bravo alpha romeo, bravo alpha lima echo tango at gmail.com. I'm really looking forward to other topics. Spencer did ask another topic associated with podcasting, which I might just throw in there just a little bit. When I was born, I was born with a cleft palate and a cleft lip and a cleft nose, and that basically defined the early part of my life with regards to speech therapy. So wherever I've had to speak, it's very difficult actually coming to the U.S. as a migrant because having done all this speech therapy, when people say you're mumbling or you're speaking in riddles or you're doing all these kind of things, which they do do periodically with me, you think, no, I actually learned how to speak with a piece of paper in front of my nose. So the nature of public speaking was something that I did uh, as a follow-on in my really early teens and debating and these kind of things was a big part of my life. So to cognitively speak and to do it from a point of definition and removing ums and ahs, I don't really say ums and ahs that much in these podcast recordings, but really the ability to speak based on what's on your mind and to kind of clear your mind just to talk about the topics that you want to talk about in a specific way, in a specific form is something that is really very central to me and comes back from this early speech therapy stuff. So podcasting is an extension of that. The ability to think deeply about a topic and kind of distill it into various parts is something which I think is a critical skill. And it's a skill that I maintain in large part through recording these podcasts. It does become very curious because the podcasts are very scattershot in the way that I actually communicated, to my thinking at least. But I hope that I distill enough. I know Spencer is one of these long-suffering listeners who finds a number of the topics just far off left field, I guess. So what I'd be looking for is people who are willing to email me questions that I could talk about. Spencer also wanted to know about software. My relationship with software is slightly too intimate currently for me to talk more about a podcast recording, but this is something I am unpacking cognitively and hopefully we'll get some information out because I know I recorded briefly associated with what you have to do to find a bug in an old piece of software that you might have long ago forgotten about. The details of that are strictly about bifurcating through time and looking at deltas and checking between the two. When did this actually break? When did this actually break? And I was able to converge relatively quickly on when it actively broke associated with Simulator Ape. And thankfully, within probably an hour or so, I'd found the exact set of code changes that caused this thing to break, which made writing a fix for it considerably easier. But what happens is you develop all these skills which are just perfectly implicit and you do so over, you know, basically a lifetime of doing this kind of work. So it's relatively difficult for me to unpack a topic like software and talk about how I do it professionally here because I'm still surviving doing it currently. Thank you very much. Anyway, thank you very much, Spencer, for submitting these topics. I wanted to get them out early, so Happy New Year for all those who would like the final procedure associated with this end-of-year period. Tom Barbelay in Las Vegas, Nevada, signing out. <laughs>